Hello, everybody. Welcome to Hold the Line. My name's Joe, and I'm a British force-free gun dog trainer. You can check out my online courses at forcefreegundog.com. The newest course is called Training the T Drill. You can also pick up a copy of my book called Force Free Gun Dog Training: The Fundamentals for Success, which is available on Amazon's everywhere around the world. There's also an accompanying workbook to record your training sessions in. I'm currently working on a sequel to Force Free Gun Dog Training. And I hope it's going to be out maybe in about six months. We'll see. That's all for now. Let's get on with the show. Train your gun dog without force or fear. Motivate and educate. Hold the line is here. Invention, repetition, generalization, motivation. Hold the line. Oh, yeah. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Hold the Line. I've got something pretty exciting today. I've got an interview. It's been a while since we've had an interview. And the reason for that is it's been difficult to predict when the house is going to be quiet enough to schedule an interview. So it's been hard to look at the diary and say, yes, at 6pm on Tuesday, it will be possible to interview people without dogs playing loudly, running backwards and forwards with toys and all the rest of it. So it's just been easier recently for me to just grab moments when the house is quiet to sit down and make an episode rather than having to sort of plan that in advance. But Puppy is now six months old, almost, and it's time for an interview. I've managed to get one recorded for you. So let's not keep you all hanging around. I'm going to introduce the guests in the plural. There's more than one. Hold the line. So we haven't actually had episodes where we focus on specific breeds before on this podcast, but it's an interesting conversation to have, especially when the breeds concerned are less well-known and minority breeds, really. So the breed concerned is the Stabbyhound, Stabbyhound, Stabbyhound. It's pronounced in various different ways, and that's exactly where we begin our conversation, as you'll hear in a minute. And I have on the show two people to talk about it. So the first person is Hannah Woods, and Hannah is the vice chair of the UK Stabbyhound Association and head of the Breeding Advisory Committee. Hannah collected her first Stabby Hound from the Netherlands in 2013, and she's since bred four litters in the UK. And she now owns two Stabby Hounds and co-owns a third. And we've also got Ian Clark. Ian is an owner of Stabby Hounds, and he works his dogs in the field. So we've got him here to give a sort of perspective, which takes that into account. And he's also a trainer and behaviorist, and his business is called Dogs Be Dogs. He's got a four-year-old Stabby Hound called Nero, and he's just brought home another pup as well. So this is a little chat that I had with them. I think that the um, breed club, the Stabbyhound Association, is making lots of very interesting choices. And there's lots to reflect on here for other breeds, I think, as well, whether or not they want to make the same choices. It's kind of very interesting, the direction that they're going in. So anyway, here's a little chat that I had with Hannah and Ian. Hold the line. So welcome to Hold the Line. Um, so you guys are here to talk about, I don't even know how to pronounce this, the Stabby Hound, the Stabby Hound. How do you pronounce the breed of the dog? Well, I, in theory, it's supposed to be pronounced the Dutch way, which is Stabby Hound. But I kind of find in England, if you say that, people think you may be taking it all a bit too seriously. So um, <laughs> I've 
taken just to calling them Stabyhoun. Stabyhoun is easy for us. So it's Stabyhoun or Stabai for short. Okay, Stabyhoun. All right. So tell us a little bit more because I think um, maybe as a little bit of background, we should just say, Hannah, you contacted me and you wanted to come and promote the Stabyhoun as a working breed because it's something that you care a lot about and you want to make sure that the breed ends up in working homes. Is that is that kind of a good summary? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think we are really passionate about just trying to get the right people interested in the breed, really. Um, we've taken the decision not to go down the route of applying for kennel club recognition and registration. We don't really have an interest in going on the import register because we would much prefer that these dogs are bred responsibly and go into homes that are actually going to use them rather than just end up in the show ring. Nothing against show breeders, of course, but um, in our efforts to kind of pr- produce a, a diverse, healthy, happy population, I think that the right homes are really, really important. Well, that's very interesting. Um, so that presumably also means that you wouldn't be able to compete in, for example, field trials, working tests, kennel club registered gun dog events either in the UK, at least. Is that is that right? They can go on the kennel club activity register. Um, they wouldn't be able to go into breed specific um, gun dog events, to my knowledge. Right. So tell me a little bit more then about what the breed is like as a working dog. Ian, it might be best to to ask you about that bit because I understand that you're a bit more involved with the working side of things. Yeah, so I'm a um, I'm a trainer. Um, I uh, work with I have worked with Nero. My I, I've got a Stabie Hoon, uh, Nero. In fact, I've got two. Uh, Nero and Napa joined me two weeks ago, so I've got uh, two of the little blighters. The name Stabie Hoon um, actually roughly translates from Dutch into "stand by me" dog. Right. So they're pointing breed. That's is that's that's correct. Is that right? So he's, he's yeah, hunt point retrieve is what they've been classed as in in the sort of the gun dog world, um, a utility dog. But yeah, I'd say that he's probably more a pointer um, than a retriever. Right. But so that, although they're not kennel club registered and they can't compete, it sounds like if they were to be, you know, categorised as a sort of retriever spaniel or HPR, they would fall into the HPR category. Yes. Right. Yeah. It, absolutely. Um, in in the FCI, they're classed under the pointing group, so they can be competed with sort of in Europe and, and in Ireland. Their work ethic is amazing, and the nose on them, um, a lot of them are used in Scandinavia for sort of blood tracking for big game because they're just, and their stamina is incredible. They will just keep going and going and going. Um, but yeah, they're, they're really nice to work with. They were actually bred to uh, hunt moles. They were mole-catching dogs. So wow. the nose was you, very important. How do you hunt a mole? Honestly, it's incredible. To, you wouldn't think, would you? It's incredible to watch. Mika, my um, my eldest, she is nearly eight. She's eight next week, uh, Nero's mum. She can pull moles out of a molehill. She'll she'll track underground. You watch her doing it. You can sort of see her listening and smelling. And she'll track to which, which hill the mole is sort of active in. And she will wait. And I've watched her wait for a good, a solid 10 minutes on a single molehill. Um until the right moment and she just plunges her head in and pulls a mole out it's incredible wow yeah i mean moles are moles are a problem for lots of people everywhere all over the world aren't they the number of you know my parents keep getting moles in their lawn all the time and they've tried everything <laughs> um so it sounds like there's a need for this um so anyway so moles but anything else what else were they sort of bred to hunt uh moles and as a general sort of gun dog they're 
their orig- origins were as a as a farm dog. They weren't. They were a poor man's dog. They weren't sort of for the for the elite hunting classes. So the idea was that they would be a very good watchdog, and they are. They will sound the alert if someone turns up. Um, they are quite vocal like that. They were also bred to sort of hunt vermin and also be able to go out into the fields and do shooting. So they're very much an all-rounder. So what is their sort of range like? Some of the HBR breeds are more closer ranging than others. Some people like a really wide-ranging dog, which runs really far. Other people prefer a dog which doesn't pull out so much and is, you know feels a little bit more under control or needs to hunt a little bit closer to them. So what is the kind of range like? I would say so a good couple of hundred metres um, he's fine at. Um, so I recently took him to uh, a field up in the Midlands. Um, actually, it was um, Helen Phillips's uh, new field up there. I don't know if you've uh, experienced it, Joe. Um, she so so he we were doing some hunting training, and there was five or six dummies hidden around this field. I didn't know where they were, um, and the field is probably a good a good nine ten acres. Um, and uh, we'd caught, he'd immediately found a couple of the dummies, um, and then he got his head up, and I could see him air sniffing, and he went, and he went all the way to the other end of the field, which was, you know, uh, if you can imagine a nine, ten acre field, pretty pretty large area. He went all that way, um, just bolted, picked up a dummy, and came straight back to me. And the, the amazing thing was, it wasn't even one of the dummies that was um, had been laid out in the field. He'd just winded it, um, and somebody had dropped it out of their tree, uh, out of their um, their pouch without realizing it and he went and retrieved it having got a got a wind of it at that distance so um that's the sort of range that he's quite comfortable in going um right and it's is he just, an just great to see is he i don't i don't think so that... i think i i think right. that's that's kind of standard i think that he's he's in that sort of category like you said with the, of the wider ranging sort of hprs right it sounds like they've been around for a while like they've not they're not a recently developed breed for example like the slovakian rough-head pointer has kind of been developed um from the 1950s onwards in slovakia but yeah. it sounds like the, the, the stabihun stabihun whatever um <laughs> has been around for much much longer and is is sort of a traditional breed in its country of origin is that correct and if so why have we not yes. heard anything about it until relatively recently yeah, you're absolutely right. They have been around for a while. They were developed sort of in the, I think it's sort of 16th, 17th century from the Spanish. They were brought up, so they introduced like Spaniel type pointers to the Netherlands and they were developed from there. Um, they've very much been kept in the Netherlands. They, they, they developed in Friesland, which is the northern sort of provinces in the Netherlands, and they've kind of kept them to themselves a little bit, really. In the UK, have only known them to but they were introduced when the UK Stay Behind Association was first set up in 2013. So that was when the first dogs were officially imported um, by a lady called Christina Savage, who had one when she was growing up in Denmark, because they were kind of known in Scandinavia as well as being good hunting, good tracking dogs for big game. So she absolutely adored the one she'd grown up with. And as soon as they kind of introduced the pets passport scheme and it became a bit easier to import dog without having to do quarantine and and all that sort of thing that's when she decided to set up uh, the UK Stabia Hound Association and get them get them established here so they've always been numerically quite a small breed I think currently there's estimated to be around 6,000 dogs worldwide um, there are established populations now in the USA in England, we now have one, as well as the Netherlands. And there are also breed clubs in Germany, Denmark, Sweden, and Norway. And I think the Finnish have one as well. 
but that's it that that's that's where they are they aren't in other there might be isolated dogs in other places but there aren't any actual populations okay folks it's time for a whistle pause a whistle pause is when there would usually be an advert from a sponsor but i don't have a sponsor so instead i'm going to play you a tune on my trusty acme 212 Now, the tune there is slightly hampered by the fact that the 212 is just one pitch, but I hope you can appreciate the rhythm. Now, the reason that we've got this beautiful whistle pause instead of an advert is because I don't get any funding for this podcast or sponsorship. I record it, edit it, upload it myself, and I pay for the server. I don't want to get a sponsor because then I have to promote whatever business is sponsoring me. And apart from the fact that I think that most dog products are bollocks, I would lose some of the independence and the freedom that I have at the moment to say whatever I want to say about whatever I want to say it about. But if you want to support me, and if you like this podcast, then there are some ways that you can support me, which will also benefit you, I hope. So you can check out the online courses I make, which you can find at forcefreegundog.com. And you can also check out my book, Force Free Gundog Training, and the accompanying workbook for it, which is a planner called The Workbook. You can get both of these from Amazon wherever you live in the world. So I really hope you can support me and check out some of this material. Anyway, that is the end of today's Whistle Pause. Let's get back to the show. Right, and do you know like how the breed was developed in the first place because just looking at them visually they they look something there's something about the head which is a little bit like a newfoundland head the body shape is a bit munsterlander ish um so i just wondered what what's behind them do you know like where they came from they are related to munsterlanders so kind of your munsterlanders the uh dutch partridge dog i'm not going to try and attempt to say the actual name the way it's meant to be um long hair pointers kind of that is that is the heritage of them that's what they were developed from um very very similar to those when you go back when we've actually been looking at doing outcross programs for genetic reasons so that we can introduce a bit more diversity those are the breeds that we're staying away from because they are quite similar in heritage right and what what are they like in water talking about newfoundland so they are they good swimmers are they good water dogs they are excellent swimmers. It took Ian uh, a while to get Nero into the water. I think he quite liked to paddle. Yeah, he um, he wasn't he wasn't a swimmer originally. He um, he didn't really like swimming. He'd go into the water, no problem at all, but he wouldn't like take his weight off the floor. Um, and we probably it took us about over a year, I think, and then we got him a um, uh, buoyancy aid just to give him that little bit of extra confidence to be able to go swimming. And he first attempt, he went swimming. And the following day, we took him to the water again. But this time, we didn't give him buoyancy aid. And he swam unaided for the first time. And now he loves it, um, which is very useful because I need him to be able to do water retrieves. <laughs> That's it. They are actually, generally, Nero is a bit of an exception because generally, they absolutely adore swimming. They love water. Um, Mika, my eldest, will swim for fun a juror our nine-month-old pup she'll she's sort of almost there she's paddling at kind of chest neck again she's just not quite taking a weight off but she she loves the water so they are very strong swimmers the breed club is very um responsibly trying to place pups in homes that are going to nurture them and health test them and 
only breed from fully health tested dogs and so on. Um, so I just wonder if you, if you could say a bit about, you know, what health tests are you looking for them to, to go through? Yeah, um, health testing is something that we're really, really passionate about because you can have the most amazing dog in the world, temperament, working ability, but it's if it's not healthy and hasn't got longevity and all the rest, then it, it's not, you can't work them, can you, if they're chronically hip dysplasia and elbow dysplasia and things. So they are, we hip and elbow score all breeding dogs. Hip dysplasia is not really seen in the breed. Um, elbow dysplasia is seen sometimes, though. We've never had one in the UK so far, but they do have some issues in Holland, but then they don't elbow score them yet in Holland. So it's something that we're kind of trying to lead the way on as a bit of an example and show it does work. It's worth screening for that. They We also do DNA testing with the Embark test. The, the purpose of that's twofold. For one, it they do so many health sort of test screening. Uh, a lot of Staby Hound do carry the gene for von Willebrand type 1, but we don't actually see uh, sort of any clinical dogs. We've only found out about that because we started doing this DNA testing. The reason that we started doing the, the DNA test was actually for for kinship and to find out a bit more about the genetic map of the dogs that we've got. The idea being behind that is if you you have conditions sort of so we do see a bit of epilepsy sometimes, um, PDA, which is a heart condition, which you can discover in pups. When we're saying we see it sometimes, this is kind of 1% of the population potentially. So we're not talking a great number of dogs, but the health reporting in the breed is incredible. I've never known anything like it. If, if there's a problem, it is reported and it's recorded. So you can print off a report from their pedigree database and you've got, you know, this dog has had a pup with epilepsy or this dog's had two pups with elbow dysplasia sort of in its lifetime. So you really start to be able to build a picture of, of where there might be problems. But by using this kinship data from the DNA testing, we've actually got the potential to be able to find genetic clusters. Even though you can't find the gene involved, you might be able to to locate the lines that it's coming down. I'm not sure if that makes sense, but that's we're trying to explain it in shorthand. But that was the reason we started doing that that DNA testing. And we've sort of found that it's been really useful for health and matchmaking as well when we're looking for mating combinations. Right. And so would you have all the pups tested anyway when they were what what age? Yeah, every puppy in the UK that's that's born is DNA tested whilst they're with the litter. So right. so yeah, we, we know from the start if there are any issues. The approach that you're taking is, is really quite interesting because it reminds me a bit of um you know, there are some European countries which sort of decide who's going to breed which dog to which dog. Um, and it's kind of it's not made on an individual decision in terms of whoever happens to own the female dog, as in, hey, let's have a litter of puppies. But it's made on a sort of club decision, like who's going to breed this year um, and who are they going to breed to and why. And it's based on, you know, health testing, working results, um, genetic diversity and all those kinds of, of things. So it's not, you know, I think it means that it takes a lot of the sort of... Um, people breeding for the wrong reasons out of the out of the picture when decisions are made like that it's not to say that it's yeah. like how how every club should be but i think it's kind of interesting because it's not how most clubs in the uk operate or most breeders in the uk operate and it's kind of a different system for for the uk to be to be sort of using so do you want to say a little bit about that yeah it 
it is as you say we followed quite a similar pattern with that I think because because we've been able to do this from the start we've we've established a breed wanting to get a healthy diverse population and realizing that this is going to have to be a team effort because I I know sort of other breed clubs it's quite individualistic and you understand that because everyone wants to choose the dog that they want to choose that's totally understandable but when you're kind of trying to build a population if everyone's just doing their own thing it doesn't it doesn't work it's not going to work you end up with bottlenecks people all choosing the same dog because he looks gorgeous um or he's got an outstanding working ability and perhaps neglecting other dogs which themselves aren't anything sort of massively outstanding you wouldn't look at them and think oh wow he's a champion but they are equally valuable genetically and that's that's what we've gone for so everyone that's got involved so far has been really really passionate about just trying to to do it the right way so they actually want the advice of the UK Stabie Hound Association on which which dog to look for for their bitch which has been really nice it's been really nice to work with people like that who just want to breed to improve the breed and there's no other motive which is is quite special that's sort of why I got involved in the first place um was because I was a bit tired of having a breed I, I um, inherited my dad's German Shepherd I grew up with German Shepherds and we have Shelties as well um and just sort of talking to other breeders about issues and them kind of going just blanking me and going well I'm not really don't either don't know what you're talking about or yeah well just deal with it just get on with it I really wanted to do something where we were actually going to improve something sort of do something meaningful and it really feels like that is happening we've got 267 dogs now in the UK um which is quite special so and some really amazing owners and most people that are actually breeding they're not they're not breeders they are people that have got one of these dogs as a pet and they are really wanting to contribute something themselves so with the support from the association we'll have maybe a litter or two with their dog or bitch and that's it so they're not becoming big-time breeders. They're just trying to do something to contribute to the population. I'm going to interrupt this fabulous discussion to bring you today's whistle pause. The whistle pause is where an ad break would usually be, but I don't have an ad break. I just have me and my whistle, my trusty T12, on which I'm going to play you a tune. The sad thing about my whistle at the moment is that it's dying a little bit, so bits of plastic have broken off. So it will only blow if I blow it really loudly, then a note will come out. Otherwise, it's this kind of whispery, hoarse, airy, breathy noise. So I've got another whistle on order, and I'd like to reassure you that the the whistle pause will improve in quality in future episodes. Now, the reason we don't have an ad break here and you have this whistle pause instead is because I don't have a sponsor. I don't want a sponsor because I want to be completely free to recommend the products I want to recommend. And I don't want to have to recommend a product that I don't believe in or love in order to get sponsorship. So there are some ways you can support me, though, because otherwise it is just me making this podcast. So, if you like this podcast, there are some simple things and free things that you can do. One is to share it and to tell other people about it, and to post it on social media, and to promote it whenever you can. 
the other thing you can do will benefit you as well, I hope. You can check out some of my courses, my online platform, forcefreegundog.com. And you can also check out my book, Force Free Gundog Training, and the accompanying workbook for it, which is a planner called The Workbook. You can get both of these from Amazon, wherever you live. That is the end of today's whistle pause. Let's get back to the show. Right, that's quite interesting, because I did have a little quick look at, at your Facebook page for the association, and there was something mm. about, um, are you interested in having a puppy, and you, you would need to be interested in having a litter or two. So is that that's part of what you're talking about there. So you're like trying to find homes that are willing to raise a litter or two in order to contribute to the sort of pool of dogs in the UK. Yeah, we try and ask people to be open-minded about having a litter or two. I mean, if people just want a pet as well, that's absolutely fine because not all dogs, pets will be breeding quality anyway. Um, and also if someone doesn't want to breed, that's fine. And sometimes people will get a dog and they say they want to breed, but then circumstances change, of course, and there's, there's no contracts or anything like that. If someone says they want to breed and then later on they change their mind, that's fine. It, obviously we, we just want people to do it that, that kind of want to be involved, but genetically it's sort of been proven that it's far far better to breed more dogs and fewer litters than to breed fewer dogs with more litters and you end up with this popular sire syndrome these genetic bottlenecks where one dog has become prolific so each dog in the uk is limited to having no more than 21 puppies be that a male dog or a female dog so that we don't end up having a population flooded by just one dog's genes Everyone that's involved has just been happy to, like, they understand why that restriction's in place. It was the biggest thing. It, it's for diversity and nothing else. There is also similar in, in Holland. In fact, each breed club that is involved with the breed has, it might not be the same restriction because, for instance, Holland has a far bigger population. So they allow more litters from each dog, um, be that dog or bitch. But they still cap the amount of do- litters that dog can have. So a male dog can only have two litters a year in Holland um, and no more than 10 litters in its lifetime. And that's just to spread the genes out and to stop the being sort of, you know, a dog gets made champion one year and then every female owner might flood to use that dog. (laughs) Um, And it just prevents that sort of thing from happening. So I suppose, how do you keep people sticking to that? Well, if people kind of, they, they join us, they join the association, understanding that this is the way we're doing things and this is why we're doing it. Um, if people do want to kind of go off and do their own thing, well, then you're not part of what we're doing. So kind of that sort of support and that network wouldn't be there for, for them. And that would be that would be an individual decision. But it would be very difficult for someone, because it is such a small breed, as it is in other countries as well, for someone to kind of go off and do their own thing and so yeah, I've got a, I've got a stay behind for stud, but there won't really be any females to be going to it. So, yeah, I think I think I'd I'd like to if I can also make a comment from the other side of the fence as well. From from mm-hmm. being an owner, um, I feel very privileged to not only have had you know been trusted with Nero, uh, but also that I've now got a second stabby um, who joined me just just under two weeks ago um, I feel very privileged um, to have been able to, to take those, these guys on and I think part of the uh, policing I suppose is the one way that you could you could kind of suggest um, your question Joe 
um, policing it is that there is a very stringent process to go through to be selected as a um, an owner of of these dogs. And yes, that might be because it's still a small smallish um, number of dogs in the, uh, available in the UK. But it is it also just kind of you know if you are if you want one of these one of these puppies, you need to go through jump through quite a lot of hoops. Um, you need to go through an extensive application process, and then you need to go through interviews with the breeder um, of those particular potential litter, um, and you are selected based on your um, uh, suitability for that particular litter. And I think that that is is also going to be a deterrent from anybody for going outside because then you feel part of the club, then you feel part of the the whole history and and included within the ethos behind what uh, Hannah and the UKSA are trying to do. Really nice point from an owner's point of view. Thank you. Ian. <laughs> yeah, thank you. I hadn't really thought to put it in from that point of view, but yeah, to- totally true. There is a really stringent process for getting these pups. So I think what you're saying is. Although there's a stringent process, it leaves you feeling that you've been chosen rather than anything negative. It leaves, it leaves you feeling something something positive because it is absolutely like you've been positively chosen to raise one of these pups. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. it's a it's a privilege. Yeah. yeah, I was so when when I got when I got given the okay when we got our first one. Oh man, I was just absolutely over the moon. It's it's something really nice to be a part of. It does strike me as very as very brave to to not seek kennel club registration and to not go down the sort of showing or being able to compete in you know, field trials, working tests, that side of things. So there's lots of people who are always sort of nitpicking at the kennel club and there's lots of, you know, people, <laughs> bad things to say about all aspects of <laughs> the kennel club and showing and working and competing. But at the end of the day, after all of that, most of those people, in fact, pretty much all of them I've ever encountered end up being part of the kennel club system anyway, because it is in the UK, at least pretty much the only system. I know that in North America, there's sort of NAVDA and there are other systems that people can choose to register under and compete under and have their dogs assessed through. But in the UK, it's pretty much the thing. So it's, it's very, it seems a very brave path to strike out on for, for a club to not seek kennel club registration. Yeah, I think it was something that was really, well, it was something that was really carefully considered at the very beginning is this something that we're going to go for or is it not um there are sort of a couple of the members more experienced ones that have sort of been in the club for quite a long time have been involved in other breeds and the introduction of other breeds into the country so um our chairman has been in with nova scotia duck tolling retrievers for a long time um one of our longest standing members has bred spinonis for a long time and they've both seen the decline of those breeds sort of as not being able to I think they've seen it really is kind of being involved with the kennel club hasn't helped the especially with show populations you end up with a bit of a split population of you've got show dogs and then working dogs and that's not something we want to happen either so for us really it's just about establishing a really healthy diverse population and not worrying too much about titles be it working or show at this point will it happen in the future potentially it could do um but at the moment there are no plans for it and all the puppies something that's important to to mention is all puppies are registered with the dutch kennel club we we lobbied the dutch kennel club from 2013 to 2015 to be able to get the dogs registered so that they wouldn't just be disappearing off um and get lost so to speak so all the pups are registered with the dutch kennel club 
they're not kind of just floating around. They're sort of able to be registered, even though they live yeah. here. That wow. Yeah, it was a really big thing. Yeah, it was a really big thing. That's why it took a couple of years. But the Dutch Gannel Club introduced a new rule, which would allow breeders that or foreign breeders in different countries to register Dutch heritage breeds that weren't recognised by a kennel club in that country with the Dutch Kennel Club so that they wouldn't just be lost. They would still be able to be used in the population. And we have exported pups to America. We have um, potentially we'll be looking to export a couple of pups soon sort of over to Denmark or to Holland so that we can give back. We obviously imported a lot of dogs to be able to establish a population. The fact that we've been able to register them with the Dutch Kennel Club means that we can now give back to other populations. I'm going to interrupt this fabulous discussion to bring you today's whistle pause. The whistle pause is where an ad break would usually be, but I don't have an ad break. I just have me and my whistle, my trusty T12, on which I'm going to play you a tune. The sad thing about my whistle at the moment is that it's dying a little bit, so bits of plastic have broken off. So it will only blow if I blow it really loudly, then a note will come out. Otherwise, it's this kind of whispery, hoarse, airy, breathy noise. So I've got another whistle on order, and I'd like to reassure you that the the whistle pause will improve in quality in future episodes. Now, the reason we don't have an ad break here and you have this whistle pause instead is because I don't have a sponsor. I don't want a sponsor because I want to be completely free to recommend the products I want to recommend and I don't want to have to recommend a product that I don't believe in or love in order to get sponsorship. So there are some ways you can support me though because otherwise it is just me making this podcast. So if you like this podcast, there are some simple things and free things that you can do. One is to share it and to tell other people about it and to post it on social media and to promote it whenever you can. The other thing you can do will benefit you as well, I hope. You can check out some of my courses, my online platform, forcefreegundog.com. And you can also check out my book, Force-Free Gundog Training and the accompanying workbook for it, which is a planner called The Workbook. You can get both of these from Amazon, wherever you live. That is the end of today's whistle pause. Let's get back to the show. And you did mention in passing there something about um, using other breeds for genetic diversity or talks about using other breeds for genetic diversity and which those should be. Is that something that is happening at the moment or something that is planned to happen or a little bit of both so planned to happen in that in holland they do have sort of they are thinking about plans for an outcross program they've done a successful planned outcross program with their sort of cousin breed the vetterhound which are curly coated retriever sort of dogs that look like stabie hounds but bigger and with curly coats so they've in successfully done that and they're looking to do similar with the stabie hand but another initiative has been to use dogs which they call look-alike stabie hounds so these are dogs which are genetically more than 70 percent stabie hound but might have a bit of mixed breed from somewhere a, a random cross that happened with a farm dog at some point um these dogs might be unregistered but genetically they are very similar to the stabie hound already because they're 70 percent stabie 
and there is a Dutch initiative to use these dogs and just introduce sort of one to breed just have one litter that might be bred from so not not like flooding the population with genes that aren't stay behind but also in introducing that little bit of diversity so we do actually have a couple of dogs which are have been imported which are mostly stay behind but have a little bit of other dogs in their ancestry be it a bit of vetterhound a bit of pointer from somewhere else and the plan is to use those dogs with pure sort of registered stay behind just to bring extra a bit it's almost like you end up having an f8 generation outcross you've not had to go through the f1 two three four so that's that's the plan anyway <laughs> there's uh the american club are, are spearheading this one and we're we're really supporting them on it because it's it's the way forward to improve diversity we can't make diversity any better with just the genes that we've got in any breed um if you want to get better diversity you have to introduce that so if someone is listening and they're sort of thinking oh, i'd really like to you know consider a puppy how would they you know stay behind puppy how would they you know what's the next step how would they go about finding out more or um, finding out if they'd be a suitable home and maybe ian can say a bit about what it's like to raise a stay behind puppy because he's got one right now <laughs> well uh, early days yeah uh, early days so um well, just go, I'll just go back to the sort of the breeding uh, first and foremost. So the breeder um, of Napa, who is my my pup, um, she was, has done an absolutely fantastic job. So, um, and this is something I don't think Hannah um, mentioned, but it's worth mentioning now. Anybody who breeds um, these dogs are encouraged to follow the um, uh, puppy culture protocols. Which is um, what went what what Napa went through. Um, so she she already came to us, effectively toilet trained, um, had been socialised, had been introduced to all sorts of different stimuli experiences, raised in the home, um, fantastic program, and she is Napa is absolutely brilliant. Uh, apart from you know the only negative I could bring up, and this is one that um, all puppies, no, no matter what breed they are, um, she you forget. But don't you, when you haven't had a puppy for a while, um, you forget just how sharp their teeth are. Um, and those little nips that you get on the ankles in the morning when you're making the coffee uh, and you've just got your dressing gown on and the stealthy dog comes up behind you and bites your ankle. Yeah, that, that's um, that's something that I'd forgotten all about. But that's the only thing I could ever complain about. She's she's um, very switched on. She's very well behaved. She's We've had no issues with toilet training. She's already going outside. Um you know there's i can't say anything negative whatsoever so she's been absolutely fantastic so far and also it's been great because i've got four other dogs so for her to be able to slot in um to 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 those and she's not been phased by them at all in fact she's brought out a maternal side to one of my terriers which i never knew existed (laughs) wow so so hannah do you want to just say on to the first one because that was the second part what's it like to raise one but what's it what how do people go about getting one if they want one as it were um if you go to or if they or someone went to the uk stay behind association website you there's loads and loads and loads of information on there about how to kind of get in touch about a puppy but what we insist on is that before applying for a, a puppy or anything going on there, there's like a central waiting list that breeders have access to so the uk stay behind association holds a waiting list of, of applicants um you need to meet a stay behind it's super super important 
and we try and encourage people to meet to meet a few meet dogs and bitches spend a bit of time with different owners because obviously no two dogs are alike but once you meet a few of them you can start to see what the similarities are and what maybe is individual so we've got a list of meeting homes i know that nero's introduced a few a few people to the breed and we've done i've lost count how many we've done now but that's kind of nice to be involved in and if you fall in love with them then just pop a get in touch with the stay behind association you put an application in jane our amazing secretary deals she sort of sorts out the waiting list which is an absolutely mammoth task but she's so organized she does a brilliant job and then applications sort of get will get sent to breeders when we know that there's a litter coming up and from that point on it is then up to the breeder who they wish to select sort of to have a chat with and get to know a little bit more about puppies so it's done on a very fair basis and there does tend to be breeders will probably lean towards homes which are actually going to want to do something with the dog um be that working breeding both again though if they just want a really nice family pet these dogs are super affectionate and provided they're still got a job to do they aren't they maybe are not as high energy as some of the working dogs but definitely still have a drive still have a a mental need to be doing something um then they can make great pets too right and am i I right that one goal is to get place more of them in working homes and to see more of them you know placed in that those kinds of homes so that you can preserve that aspect of of their breed is that the breed is that part of what's important yeah we'd love to have some more people that are wanting dogs to do to do a job with it would just be really nice to see them because they they have such a good ability not all of them have a high drive there are a few individuals i know that are total couch potatoes but most of them have a really good drive to want to do something and it would just be nice to see that being used and they're the kind of people that we want involved the people that are actually sort of going to be active in the breed just want want a dog for its ability rather than kind of leaning towards sort of confirmation type which is where working ability sort of the, the function becomes less important than the form of the dog and it would just be really nice to keep that going and not lose that right so does the association have a website so that people can can find out more it does it does it is the oh, hang on just find out what it is staybehounduk.com staybehounduk.com Excellent. Yeah, there is lots more on there about health, breeding, puppies, how to get involved. Yeah, all sorts. Okay. And if people are listening from elsewhere in the world, like North America or I don't know, anywhere, is there a, <laughs> presumably there are other <laughs> places they can go and find out about the breed in their own countries, like the associations or clubs over there have websites and information. Yeah, absolutely. The In the US, there is the American Stay Behind Association. They are doing massive things for sort of diversity and really leading the way in research for that they're they're amazing we love our american cousins um in the in the netherlands there is the i'm not going to try and say it but nvsw is is the uh the letters for the club i'm not going to try and pronounce what it is in dutch but yeah in in, in denmark and in sweden and norway as well they have well-established clubs as well with people to to go and meet and have a chat to cool all right. Well, thank you very much for coming on the show, Hannah and Ian. Um, it's been great to talk to you and bye-bye for now. Bye for now, Joe. Thank you for the opportunity. Thanks, Joe. Take care. Hold the line. That's all for this week, folks. Keep training those dogs and I'll talk to you soon. 
Hold the line. Hold the line. Hold the line. Hold the line.